We actually sang Psalm 32, and then this song that we just finished singing is actually a, based on the similar, the similar theme of Psalm 32. So we've got a double dose of forgiveness and praise here from Psalm 32. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Uh, while I've been here, and it's been a few weeks since I've been here, but we are doing a working our way through 1 Timothy, a couple of reasons why. Uh, Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy. He also wrote to Titus, two younger men who were apprentices of his in the ministry. He's instructing them on what they should do in the church, what their, their uh, role is and their responsibilities in the church of Jesus Christ as younger ministers. But in the course of doing that, he's also kind of teaching us a little bit about what we should be looking for in a minister and uh, what, what are the priorities uh, that uh, we should be uh, focused on in the search for a new pastor. <clears throat> uh, we talked about, first of all, Paul calling Timothy a, a true son in the faith, and, and what did that mean? What what makes Paul say that and refer to Timothy in that way? And then we also talked uh, the last time about Paul's first order of business, which was to tell Timothy, instruct Timothy, and encourage and strengthen Timothy to silence false teachers who had come into the church. It's something we don't often think about, but even in the earliest years of the church, the apostolic age, the church was troubled by many, many false teachers and false teachings that were coming in, almost to the point by the end of the first century and into the second century of, of uh, the church's history that it was almost completely overwhelmed by false teachers. When you think about it, it's a miracle. Well, maybe not a technically a miracle, but it certainly is a work of God's grace that the church not only survived, but thrives and continues to survive. Because, you know what, things really haven't changed all that much. We still have to beware. Today, we're going to look at one of the things that Paul pointed out in his encouragement to Timothy to tell those uh, teachers, those false teachers, to stop doing what they're doing. He he points out, and we'll see this in the passage as we read it, he points out those who confidently assert certain things about the law of God. And yet he says, almost ironically, they, they don't even, even though they're so confident in what they're teaching, they don't know what they're talking about. Well, let's read the passage from 1 Timothy 1, and we'll read from verse 1 through verse 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, 
have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners and the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been and trusted. And here we end the reading of God's Word. May the Lord open our eyes, open our ears, and our hearts to truly receive with faith His Word. And you might notice in your bulletin, there's a, a, an outline of the message in your bulletin, and, and it's got six points. That doesn't mean the sermon's going to be twice as long as usual, but I'm going to go through them pretty Pretty quickly, uh, the the uh, points of this uh, of this message. <clears throat> one of the earliest controversies, in fact, not one of the earliest, but the earliest controversy in the church, and this controversy was with the Apostle Paul throughout his entire ministry, and it was a controversy on the right use of the law of God, the commandments of God. You know from reading the book of Acts, from reading Paul's letters, uh, that, that there were a group of people, that we call them the Judaizers. They were professing Christians uh, coming from Jewish backgrounds who maintained that the law, it was necessary to keep the law in all aspects, including the ceremonial law. It was necessary in order to be saved, to be justified. And so they also... Uh, had the view that in order to be justified, to be saved, you had to be circumcised. That was the, the, that was the sacrament, if you will, of the Old Covenant, of the, the sacrament of the law. Well, Paul spent so much time, and he wrote so much in the New Testament, in his letters in the New Testament, against his teaching. There was even a, a council called of the church, and they met in Jerusalem. It's recorded in Acts chapter 15. What do we do about the Gentiles who are believing in Christ? Do they need to keep the law? Well, the council said no. I mean, they need to keep the law as far as the moral law, but do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the ceremonies of the Mosaic law? The council says we will not trouble these new Gentile believers with that burden. Peter even said something in, the, in one of his speeches that neither our fathers nor we can bear the burden of this, of, these, of this law. The answer was no, but I'll tell you something. It's very interesting, and this is true today, too, that false teachers don't care what the church says. The church may make an official pronouncement, but false teachers will be true to their nature. They are false teachers, and they... Unless, unless the Lord changes their hearts, they will remain false teachers. And it didn't matter what the church in Jerusalem, the, the Council of Jerusalem, said. These Judaizers continued to make trouble, and they continued to teach confidently 
things about the law that they did not even understand. So today, we're going to actually look on the positive side. What are the lawful uses of the law? Paul says that the law is good. The law is right. The law is good when it is used lawfully. And that, that means when the law is used according to the will of God, how God intended the law to be used, it is lawful. It is good. Well, first, right off the bat, I want to. This is probably the most basic, fundamental idea, concept that we must lock down in our understanding of the right use of the law. The law of God is always essential for everyone, not just for believers, but for every person. The law of God is essential for understanding the righteous character of God. The moral law, and we're talking specifically in this case about the Ten Commandments, but we could also include the ceremonial law, teaches us about God as well, and and even those uh, civil laws uh, communicate something about the, the righteous nature of God. But at the heart of the law is the moral law, encapsulated in those Ten Commandments, further encapsulated when Jesus quoting from the Old Testament, says there are two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's really the, the, the distilled essence of the law. But the law teaches us about the righteous character of God. It is a verbal revelation of the righteous character of our God. Now, I did just come up with that on my own. I, I wish I could say I did, because well, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? But no, I didn't. It's actually a thought that comes out of our Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 95. That question says this, of what use is the moral law to all men? Notice to all men, not just Christians here, but to all men. And the answer Right off the bat, the first statement made here, the moral law is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and the will of God. Notice it's not just the will of God. To inform them of the holy nature and the will of God. When we read those commandments, we're reading a transcript of God's character. He's a God of truth. He's a God of life. He's a God, he is the only true and living God who must be worshipped and worshipped according to his will. We're reading about God then. Uh, the, the larger catechism goes on, uh, and I'll read it because it does have to do with what we will be talking about later on. It, it informs them of the holy nature and the will of God and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly, to convince them of their disability to keep it, and of the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, to humble them in the sense of their sin and misery, and thereby help them to a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience." So they really are covering two specific things here that the law reveals to us. It informs us about the, the nature, the holy nature and will of God. 
but then it also is that tool that God uses to reveal to sinners their true nature, their sinfulness. And in doing so, at least as far as the elect are concerned, it chases us to the cross of Christ. It's like a whip that that is laid on our backs to chase us, to, to humble us, to reveal to us our own sinfulness, and then chase us to Christ so that we can look to him as our Savior. The commandments, though, and I want to focus on this, is the, the, the revelation essential for us to understand the character, the righteous character of our God. We might break it down a little bit, and I wouldn't say this is absolutely uh, without exception, but generally we, we divide the Ten Commandments into the first four commandments, which is our duty to God, and then the uh, last six commandments, commandments five through ten, about our love, how we are to love one another, love our neighbor. So love to God and love to our neighbor. Commandments 1 through 4, because they focus our attention on our relationship to God and how we are to demonstrate our love to God, it tells us, it reveals to us as we consider these commandments that he and he alone is God. You shall have no other gods before me. What does that tell us about God? He is the only, the unique, the true and living God. He is to be worshipped in his way. You will not worship me according to the way the, the pagans worship their gods. They use images, they use uh, representations of creatures to somehow represent their god. But I am not like that. You worship me in spirit and in truth. Worship me is according to what I am. God is invisible. He is a spirit. We do not worship him through images. He is to be worshipped. Uh, he is as we as we come to him. We are to re, uh, remember that his name is holy. His name is holy. He is separate from his creation. He is not part of his creation. We are not God, and he is not us. He is different. He is separate. He is holy. Isn't it interesting, though, that God in the holy God, the God who is other, who is separate, spans the gap between this unique holy God and his creatures. We call that, our, our confession of faith actually uses the term condescension. God condescends. It's not a, When we use it about each other, that kind of has a negative connotation to it, but when we talk about God's condescension, it's a good thing because that's the source of all of our blessings. God has come to us. His day is holy. The day in which we remember that he is our creator and we remember that Christ, his son, has been raised from the dead. His day is holy. We remember the, the mighty acts of God in creation and redemption. Well, we could also go through the other commandments. We talk about the righteousness of God revealed. His, his will is that his image-bearing creatures, that's us, should live in harmony with his nature and demonstrate that harmony with his nature in the way that we relate to one another. 
Jesus himself is the perfect, complete representation of the divine nature in human form. That's what Hebrews tells us in its opening chapter. In the opening verses of Hebrews, he is the exact representation of the divine being. When you want to look, when you want to understand what the love of God is, look at Jesus. When you want to understand what the righteousness of God is, look at Jesus. When you want, want to understand what the, the mercy of God is, look at Jesus. He is the exact representation of God's divine nature. He is God with hands and feet and eyes and ears, a true Son of God and Son of Man. Point two. The law of God is laid down for sinners. That's what Paul says in this passage. And, and it's really what he says that is, uh, that is his beginning to, to contradict this false teaching about the law. The law of God is laid down for sinners. He says this, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, and for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, contrary to sound doctrine. Notice how he uses the law and sound doctrine as equivalents here. It's contrary to the law. It's contrary to sound doctrine. And Timothy, you're to teach sound doctrine. You're to teach sound doctrine. The commandments are framed in a way, in a way that almost assumes, that does in fact assume that we're on the wrong side of the commandments. When it tells us, thou shalt not, the implication is that our nature leads us to do these things, and we need to be taught not to, warned not to. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, because in our sinfulness we are prone to do that. You shall not steal. Well, because of our sinfulness, we are prone to take that which does not belong to us. You shall not commit adultery. I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, but our nature is that we break our promises. You shall not covet. Oh. The Apostle Paul had a special relationship with that commandment. <laughs> he says, he says in the book of Romans, as he's talking about his relationship to the law, he says, I, I, was, I was perfectly content in how I was living. I'm paraphrasing what he's saying. I was, I was innocent in a way in that I thought I was a righteous person. And then this commandment about coveting came into my heart, and it would not let me be at rest. It, when the commandment came in, he says, before the commandment came in, I was alive. But when the commandment came in, I died. That's a way of saying, I realized the sinfulness of my sin. I realized that I was not a righteous man. I was a covetous man. Because the commandment came in, and when the commandment came in, it raised up in my heart all kinds of covetousness. Tell the child, don't eat that cookie before dinner. Guess what the child's going to want to do? 
He's going to grab a whole handful of cookies. Don't think about pink elephants. What did you just think about? That's kind of a silly illustration, but the point is that our rebellious nature reacts negatively to the commandments of God. And those commandments, that which was meant to be life for me, Paul says, became the instrument of death. And I realized that I was a sinner, and all my pretenses of righteousness were, well, filthy rags. Nothing but filthy rags. The law of God is laid down for sinners, and the, and the reaction of the law, the, the law achieves its purpose when it reveals to us our sinfulness. Remember what our larger catechism said, to convince them of their disability to keep it, and of the sinful pollution of their nature, their hearts and their lives, to humble them in the sense of their sin and misery, and thereby help them to a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience. That passage where Paul talks about coveting and the, the, the commandment, thou shalt not covet, is found in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Read it sometime and see how Paul has this insight in how the law exposed to him his sinfulness and therefore exposed to him his need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul the Pharisee. Paul the self-righteous one. Well, then that leads to the third point, and the third point is this. The law of God cannot save by itself, and that is really, the, those, those, these two points are connected, really, because while the law exposes sin, and even, in a sense, with our, reacting with our sinful nature, a, a binary reaction here, uh, I once illustrated this, by the way, by putting vinegar and baking soda together. You have two inert things, you put them together, what happens? It's a, it's a violent reaction. Well, you take the sinful human heart, you take the law of God, you put them together, there's a violent reaction. And uh, But while the law has that purpose, the law cannot save by itself. It reveals our needs, but by itself it cannot save. The law chases us to Christ. It doesn't chase us to itself. We're not running around in circles trying to keep the law in order to be saved, because we can't. Paul says in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, which comes after this passage where he talks about the commandments and coveting and so forth, he says in Romans 8, 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says this, The law was unable to do something, but God did it in Christ. The law was unable to save me, to justify me, to change my nature. 
by itself, it could not do that. Because it was, was that a fault of the law? Was that, it was a weakness, but was that a weakness of the, of the revelation that God gave us? No, it was weakened by my flesh. If you find a, a dead animal at the side of the road, and you go over and you say, rise up, walk. Is that animal going to rise up and walk? It's dead. Can't respond to you. Can't do what you tell it to do. I command you, get up, walk. No, that animal is dead. It has no ability. It cannot hear you. It cannot respond to you. And you and I who are dead in our trespasses and sins, we might hear the condemning message of the law, the revealing message of the law as it reveals our sin, but we cannot respond in the sense that we cannot obey and live in and of ourselves. The law has that weakness because of the flesh. The, weak, the real weakness is a weakness of the flesh. Well, then we might ask, well, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul answers that question in Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. He uses a very strong double negative Greek there. If anyone has, has read this, they know that the, to emphasize something, double negatives in English are, are bad grammar, but double negatives in Greek are meant to emphasize. So it's meganoito. Don't even begin. Don't even say anything like this. Don't even begin to think this way. Cons uh, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give, give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Notice that here's that use of the law. It imprisons all of us under sin. It convicts all of us of our sin so that we can then go to Jesus Christ for salvation, to find grace in him. That's a, a general use of the law, and that's a that's what Paul would say is a lawful use. As he's writing these passages in Romans and Galatians, he's illustrating for us what is a lawful use of the law. What about Christians in particular? We've already dealt with this question that I need to obey the law in order to be justified, and that's wrong. That's what these teachers, these false teachers who confidently uh, claimed to understand things about which they were ignorant. That's what they were saying. But for believers, this, the law still has a great positive use in the way of instructing us, in the way of teaching us and informing us, but never apart from the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit in us. You cannot separate God's revelation and God's Spirit in our hearts, in our minds. For it is the Spirit that gives life. It's the Spirit. It is, it is God and God alone who can say to that dead being, rise up and walk. And when God says it, what happens? 
it rises up and walks. It stands up and walks because he is the God of life, not just physical life, but spiritual life as well. For those who are alive, saved by grace, saved in Christ, through Christ's work, trusting in Christ, the law of God instructs us, this is the fourth point, the law of God instructs us how to offer a living sacrifice. You remember that passage in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want you to think of this passage in Romans 12, 1 and 2 as somewhat parallel to what we found when we studied uh, several weeks ago. We looked at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Well, remember, he doesn't, he doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, he doesn't sit with those who do not love God and those who are dedicated their, have dedicated their lives to doing sin and, and evil and doubting and, and scoffing. He doesn't sit with them. He doesn't take in. In other words, he is not conformed to their, their world. But he is transformed, that man who is blessed by God, he is transformed how? But in his law, he meditates day and night. In his instruction, in God's word, he meditates day and night. That's what Psalm 119 is all about as well. If we are to do what Paul tells us to do in Romans 12, that is not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your minds, we must feed our minds on the Word of God. That's why it is the chief means of grace, ordinary. And it should be an ordinary part of your life that is very special, because it is so ordinary. In its, in its accessibility, in its prevalence in our lives, it is used by God to transform us so that we can not only understand, but test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The law of God instructs us how we should live and how we believers should offer that living sacrifice. And by the way, it's, it's kind of interesting as you look at this, what, what kind of a sacrifice Paul is talking about here. Notice he says it's a living sacrifice. Uh, we don't die. We don't offer our bodies to be sacrificed, but we do offer our entire beings. What kind of a sacrifice is it? I would, I would make the case, don't have time to, to really get into it, that this is, a, this is a, a thank offering, a type of thank offering that we give ourselves to God in thanks for all that he has done for us. We continue to live. We continue to, to breathe, to act, to live out our lives. But it is a life marked now by thankfulness. And that thankfulness is expressed in this way, that we have our minds transformed so that we can do God's will. 
Point five, the spirit-filled life conforms to the law of God. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 25. He's given a list. Paul loved these lists. We read one of them in 1 Timothy 1, and we're reading, uh, there's a couple in, in the Galatians chapter 5. He talks first about the, uh, the deeds of the sinful nature, and he gives a list that is very similar to the one that he gives in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We read today. But then he gives a list here, Galatians 5, beginning of verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice what he says next. Against such things there is no law. Those are good things. Those are the qualities that are to be built into our lives and are being built into our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit brings forth his fruit in our lives, we exhibit more and more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But I find it interesting that Paul ends that list with this comment, against such there is no law. The point is this that as we are filled with the Spirit, as the fruit of the Spirit grows in us, we are more and more conformed to those commandments, and they become more and more natural to us to express them in the way that we live. We grow in our love toward God, and we grow in our love toward one another. The Spirit-filled life is not marked by ecstatic experiences. It is marked by the regular process and regular progress of sanctification. And against such things, there is no law. Sixth point. It's easy sometimes to read Paul's letters and say that Paul had a negative view of the law. He talks about the weakness of the law. He talks about the the abuse of the law. He talks about uh, the burden of the law. But the law, the letter of the law, brings death. But what did we read in Psalm 119? We read a very positive view of the law of God. And it's, it's more than just the commandments. I, I think you get that. It's, it actually encompasses the whole revelation of God. But there is kind of this narrowing field of vision, the, the revelation of God, the law of God, the instruction of God, the commandments of God, and so forth. Even those commandments are boiled down to ten commandments and finally two commandments. Paul actually doesn't have a negative view of the law says the law is righteous, the law is holy, the law is good. Use it the right way, though. Use it the right way. If you have a negative view of the law and you read Psalm 119, though, how do you bring those two things together? How do you bring together a statement such as this? And we read similar statements this morning from our passage from Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Not the soap opera. Not even the football games. Oh, I 
confess, I, I like football. Go Clemson next year. Um, oh, how I love... David does not have a negative view of God's law. David's view is very positive. He loves God's law. He meditates in God's law. The blessed man is a man who meditates in God's law. If you have a negative view, though, you have you have a, a real hard time coming to terms with David's words in this song. And you might think it might be very easy to kind of fall into a, a dispensational kind of thinking that, well, the law was the Old Testament. We're New Testament believers. We are not under the law. We don't have really anything to do with the law anymore. David was kind of living under that burden of the old covenant, and really David is David is 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 representative of that of trying to seek life through the law. No, David is a belief. David knew he was a sinner. The, the, the law convicted David of his sin. David cried out for forgiveness. We use David's psalms of of crying out for forgiveness, his psalms of confession this morning. He was a great sinner, terrible sinner. David knew the grace of God. He knew about redemption. He knew that there was a Savior who would come. David needed his son to save him from his sins. It's not a legalist who writes these words. It is a redeemed sinner who writes these words. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. May we truly say these words and mean them and live them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let our hearts be like David's heart, who while a sinner, yet is still called in Scripture a man after your own heart. He had a renewed heart, not perfect, but renewed we pray, Father, that we would be able one day to say with David how I love your law, how I love every word of your self-revelation in the Scripture and in the commandments, that we meditate on them day and night, and we find that the commandments of God are exceedingly broad, that they have a multitude of applications, of insights, and instruction about the reality of, of our lives. Father, we pray that you would focus our, our, our eyes more and more on your word, more and more on our Savior, Jesus Christ, as the world seems right now to be turning more and more to lawlessness. We pray that your people would stand out as those who love your law and meditate on it and live it in their lives by demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit Against such, there is no law. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.